300 people there from all over the world, I mean, all over the world, all over the country. It hadn't really spread worldwide yet back in the early 50s. And uh, singing these very same hymns. Uh, it, it's nice to have the memory bank go back that far because it just suddenly, here we were singing the same things that I sang as a child in those years way back. And uh, it, it kind of tied it together for me emotionally just to be here and to be keeping these days all together as we did back then. And I think that's what God would have had us do and we should be doing as we are doing here. <clears throat> the command originally was to come up and keep the feast three times in the year. At the Passover season, the Pentecost, and then again for the fall holy days, atonement, or starting with trumpets, atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles, they all came. That wasn't really done even in the early years and worldwide. People wouldn't show up generally until the Feast of Tabernacles, because uh, that makes a long span of time if you go from trumpets clear through the feast. So I guess the practicality and the logicality of, at the time uh, pretty much didn't permit that, but uh, hopefully we'll get back soon to doing it precisely and exactly the way that it was done originally. If we're all dwelling in the same area, then you don't have to travel from New York to Texas or somewhere <clears throat> to keep trumpets and atonement and, uh, you know, and be there for three weeks, uh, which is kind of a, uh, an improbability and an impracticality in today's world. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't someday get back to that when we're together, the gathering comes, and we'll all be in the same area in order to do it the way God really intended. So we're kind of under still emergency measures where we can't do, we don't have the freedom to do everything we'd like to do, nor have we been gathered to a place where it can be done in the same way that the God intended when they went into the promised land there with Joshua. So just a thought on that, I, uh, I was reminded again, I think I told you yesterday a little bit about uh, birthing lambs and uh, what the ewes go through and, and how innocent the little lambs are and how I couldn't think of anything but Christ. And then today, ironically, we had a sheep last night about a year old, it's about the right size to butcher actually. It, uh, but Marla went out this morning, and, and this sheep had a, a piece of skin probably a foot, yeah, probably about a foot long, ripped and then pulled down, and it's just hanging down from its rib cage here down below its belly. And uh, what in the world? She didn't know whether it had gotten on a nail and pulled it or or an animal had gotten hold of it or something. Uh, anyway, that was a pleasant way to wake up this morning. And uh, something had to be done. So I looked at it and I, I thought, well, we could sew the, pull the skin back up. It's, the animal's out grazing with that big flap of skin hanging down. And I thought, well, maybe sew it back up and it would heal. Sometimes that happens, but then if flies get in and it gets infected, you might lose the animal anyway. And it was the right age to butcher flies, so I finally decided that and, uh, and did so this morning, this afternoon. 
and I couldn't help but think of Behold the Lamb of God from the Messiah, which we listened to the other night after Passover, and how Christ suffered as that worse than that sheep was, but it hadn't done any damage to the to the insides of the sheep. It wasn't an animal that did it. But I, I finally went out and found out that over at the old Johnson place, they had some pallets up on the fence, and some of the boards had gotten knocked off, and the heads of the nails were sticking out about two inches. And they had wool on them. Uh, so he had gotten on that, and it had been pulled off the fence. So uh, apparently he had gotten his wool hooked into those nails and then panicked and pulled away and jerked the pallet off the fence and at the same time tore his hide down the side. So uh, I couldn't help but think how easy it is for sheep to get in trouble. <laughs> uh, it's an analogy for us. <clears throat> it doesn't take much and we can find ourselves in all kinds of trouble and then extricating ourselves and getting away unwounded is difficult and, and under the circumstances we've had, Many are dying spiritually after having gotten themselves into all kinds of confusion and frustration and uh, false doctrine and false practice and all kinds of things that have gone on that have led us to the place where the church is today. Uh, Sheep are a very vulnerable animal, and that's one reason God caused them to be used uh, as, as Passover. Of course... You could use a goat instead of a sheep. It could be substituted. But Christ was never depicted in that sense as a goat. He's always called a lamb or the lamb of God in his innocence and his uh, vulnerability to torture and death, which he put himself into. But uh, so much to learn, especially when you're working with sheep. I want to, for a a few moments here at least, go back to the book of Jeremiah where we left off yesterday because uh, my eye would not fall on a particular verse that I wanted to to use. We were discussing, of course, as a a major topic yesterday beginning in Exodus 12 about the 430 years uh, from the time they went down or as some have put together maybe from the time of Abraham's covenant down to the time they left on that selfsame day. Uh, I haven't really looked into that recently to get the timing, but it doesn't matter. It was 430 years to the day from when God started counting that they were released. And that is the date that I'm looking at in terms of today. Uh, And... Ezekiel was looking at the 390 and the 40 or 430 together as a prophecy for the end time. And, of course, we were speculating a little bit that possibly the Roanoke colony from 1585, 430 years later, would be uh, 2015. And I wanted to clarify a little bit about what could happen there based on history and to realize that we have been as a spiritual body, the church, in the clutches of Babylon ever since God raised up uh, the truth here at the end time and having difficulty breaking free and breaking the bonds uh, that this society and culture have put upon us. 
And the first release that is mentioned in prophecy is the release of the church from the bondage of Babylon. He tells us in many places, Isaiah 48, Jeremiah 50, 51, Zephaniah 2, on and on it goes, to Micah 4, to leave or get out of the midst of Babylon and go dwell in the country to, to begin to get away from its clutches. But even then, we're still tied to its financial system, to its educational system to a degree, and all these systems around us that we have not been able to completely break free from. So that is coming in the future. We don't know exactly when, but I, I think it's certainly worthwhile to at least speculate that it could be at the end of 430 years, if Roanoke is indeed a, a date that God is using. And I don't know that for sure, but the parallel is certainly interesting as we look at what's going on today. Uh, physical Israel is not going to be released at the same time the church is. We are released to go to Zion and Jerusalem and do the end-time work of God apart from Babylon and apart from the New World Order beast that is arising. But physical Israel is going to go into this from this fairly soft captivity we have been in for these last 429 years into a physical captivity, a captivity of iron, where they'll be deported, the ones that live, and made slaves in foreign lands. So theirs is going, ours will get better, and theirs will get worse for a few years until uh, the beginning of the millennium when all Israel then will be gathered back to the promised land and, and come under the rule of Christ at that time and all uh, enemies will be put down. So, uh, we have a couple of releases ahead. One more captivity for physical Israel and its release at the beginning of the millennium. We've already been uh, under the captivity of Babylon, just as the early New Testament church was under Rome uh, throughout the duration of the early New Testament church from you know roughly 30 to 100 A.D. Uh, or about 70 years, and we were the same. Uh, and it's gone on beyond that somewhat now, but we've been released and scattered and, and everything else, but still not able to do what needs to be done. So we have those things coming up. And I'll update you a little bit on what's happening down in Bundyville, or Bunkerville. Uh, you know, everybody said, oh, this is all over uh, when the BLM backed off and released the cows. But the sheriff of Clark County, Nevada, today released a statement that there are still several hundred government agents there at the Bundy Ranch, and that they, and he said that they are now planning an attack on uh, both Cliven Bundy's and his children's houses that are on that ranch, and that they still plan to take over that ranch. Now, and in this article, too, I think it was the same article, it said that there had been, I think the number was 54 ranches, 53 or 54, in Clark County, and they've all been taken over except the Bundy Ranch. That's the only one left. And now they want it. Uh, 
it appears that there has been a four and a half billion dollar deal made with the Chinese to uh, put in a big solar farm on that ranch. Uh, so they kind of have to see this thing through in order to fulfill the contract with the Chinese. And this is happening all over the country. So what, where this thing goes next, I do not know. But uh, what they apparently did the other day was with all those militia people and various individuals there from around the West for the most part, they avoided the bloodshed and the loss of the death of BLM employees. But now that those people have kind of backed away and drifted away, they may make an attack not on the cattle but on the people themselves. So we'll see how this works out and, and what the reaction is. But it was at that point yesterday that I said there was a, some indication in Scripture <clears throat> that there will be civil war within this country. I wouldn't fall on it, but let's go there in Jeremiah 51. I was in the neighborhood, but the, the verse wouldn't come. Uh, here, let's start in verse 44. I will punish Bel or Baal in Babylon, Jeremiah 51:44, and I will bring forth out of his mouth that which he has swallowed up, and the nation shall not flow together any more unto him. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. So the nations have come to us for merchandising, as Revelation 18 clearly shows, and how when we fall, the merchants are going to wail and cry bitterly because their source of income and enriching has come to an end. So they won't flow to us anymore for the dollar, for the petrodollar. Uh, that will be a thing of the past, and this nation will fall. That's what he's talking about. The wall, the defenses, the military of Babylon will fall. Then he says, My people, verse 45, go you out of the midst of her and deliver you every man his soul from the fierce anger of the eternal. So God is going to turn many nations uh, against this nation and cause its destruction. And he says, the fierce anger of God that is going to be poured out, we have opportunity to escape from. Verse 46, And lest your heart faint, unless you get discouraged or frustrated or so scared you can't act properly, and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land. There are all kinds of evil rumors going around in this country now and uh, false flag possibilities and... Uh, people attacking in Waco or Oklahoma City or, or 911 or Bundy Ranch or, you know, pick a number. There's another one down in southwest New Mexico where the Forest Service is doing the exact same thing right now. Right now. They went to their door yesterday, or Saturday morning and told them to get off their ranch. And they'd been there since, I think, 18, the 1880s anyway. The same as the Bundys. So this is happening all over the country and they're trying under Agenda 21, to get Americans out of the country, out of the rural countryside, and into the cities where they can put them in little cracker boxes and control them completely. And they're turning over, from what I read at least, and I think it's probably true, I've seen it in quite a few sources, all of our energy-producing equipment and so on uh, to the Chinese. And then they can charge what they want for heat electricity and whatever. So this it's, it's getting scary, people. It's getting scary. 
a lot of rumors in the land. And now you may have seen back and forth, even just over this Bundy thing already, different sheriffs, different uh, governors, different uh, officials in whatever part of the government. Some are on the Bundy side, some are on the BLM side. So they're at odds with each other. Governmental people are at odds with each other. Republicans, Democrats, and it goes across party lines too as to who is involved. And Harry Reid, the senator from, uh, from Nevada who is a treasonous uh, liar and is against America and for the New World Order, is apparently part of the deal with the Chinese in Nevada. So there, there's a lot going on. Well, let's read this in light of what we can see if we look at what's happening. <clears throat> My people, go out of the midst of her and don't be there when the fierce anger of God is turned loose. Unless your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land, he says then, a rumor shall both come one year and after that, another is in italics, but after that in year, uh, come a rumor and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. So even before we are attacked from the outside, it appears that rumors are going to fly back and forth within our own country and our own rulers on whatever levels, uh, from local, city, county, state, federal, will be against one another and it will result in violence in the land. So I fully expect that we're going to see uh, civil war, re revolution, whatever word you want to put on it, once again in our own country. The seed has been planted and the, the, uh, the plant is growing. <laughs> it's now just a matter of what sets it off. Uh, with this gun confiscation thing, you've got people who are buying guns by the... Uh, did my power go off? Got guns being bought uh, by the millions, and people already have millions, and ammunition if they can get it, but the government's trying to slow down the capacity to buy ammunition or sell it uh, to help control it, so they're trying to take the guns. Well, there have been many times in the 20th century that various nations have confiscated the guns in a country and every time gun confiscation has occurred in that manner, there has been then a genocide of the government against the people of their own country. Uh, Canada may be an exception in England, but they've been without guns or handguns at least for a long time. Canadians can still own uh, long guns, but not handguns. But maybe not in absolutely every case, but in most cases... Uh, there has been a genocide in the country after they confiscated guns. So uh, there, are, there are a lot of forces going on within our country that are leading to a revolution and a civil war. And we saw it here within a hundred, we saw it here within a hundred miles of ourselves just this past week. Um, that's not me, by the way. That's that's that equipment back there. <coughs> So, uh, I've watched this three or four verses here in Jeremiah 51 for quite some years, trying to sort out exactly 
which rumors it's talking about and which rumors lead to violence ultimately. So there is that. And that leads up then to the fall of the nation once there's so much in, inner turmoil that we become vulnerable. And, and we've already seen too that our own leaders will sell us out. Now let's go to uh, Exodus chapter 1. I want to go back and explore some of the possibilities uh, and the parallels between what happened back then and what is prophesied for and already beginning to happen here today. I guess I'll just keep talking and you'll either hear me or you won't, depending on what uh, we're, are we, we're doing okay there, trying to get that together. Something's, something went haywire anyway. If I speak up, then it comes on, and if I lower my voice, then it goes off. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll survive here. Uh, now, as I started to say, I think, yesterday, uh, God prepared way, way ahead for what He was going to do. He had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob certain things, and then He led them, by circumstance, down into the land of Mitzrayim, or the land of Ham, as Psalm says three times, uh, for a long period of time that they would be there, and it would not be an arduous thing at first, but over a period of time, uh, after Joseph died and so on, uh, other rulers came to be who did not know Joseph, and they began to worry about the Israelites because they were growing very rapidly in number, and the Egyptians began to fear them. So fear can go both ways. Uh, you, you can have the government that can fear the people, as we have in our land today, because Americans are so heavily armed, uh, not only our own government, but even some foreign governments are afraid to attack America because they're afraid there'll be somebody with a gun behind every bush, uh, like it was in the Revolutionary War, where <laughs> you know, the, Brit the Brits had been trained uh, for continental warfare. Uh, back in those days, you, you did it in uh, the proper way, you know. Uh, everybody lined up across the field, and then they would march toward each other and start shooting, and then they would back off, and then they would march forward and start shooting until one side or the other turned and ran, or got killed off, or whatever. That was the proper way to fight a war. You know, the British are very proper, and so were the... Uh, uh, Europeans in that day. So they came here and they tried marching through the woods in rank, hoping to find uh, the American revolutionaries all lined up ready to stand across the meadow and shoot at each other. And it didn't work out that way. The colonists uh, had been hunting Indians and bears and deer and squirrels for quite some time and they understood stealth and standing behind trees and various things to keep from getting shot at, uh, and did that with the Brits. And, of course, they had been trained to stay in their ranks, and uh, that would be a terrible way to, to have to try to march through the woods uh, 
and people standing behind trees shooting at you. So uh, we were able to overcome, in that sense, great odds by the type of warfare that was used. But nevertheless, governments do fear an armed populace. And that's why, historically speaking, they disarm the population one way or another before they attack them. And that's what they're trying to do here because they have plans to attack us and destroy us, just like Stalin, just like others have done. So that's what's in the works. That's what's coming down. <clears throat> and here... You had the Israelites who were in captivity. They were the slaves, and yet there were getting to be so many of them that the Egyptians began to worry about it because, they, hey, you know, they're going to outnumber us. They breed so fast. So Pharaoh said, kill all the boy babies. You don't worry about women fighting so much, but kill all the boy babies. And then... We realize the midwives made excuses about how Israelite women had them so fast that they couldn't get there in time and, and kill the babies. Uh, so he told his own people to kill them. And then we had the situation where Moses was born. His name uh, became Moses or drawn out because Pharaoh's daughter had drawn him out of the water. I think it's a very interesting way that he got named. And God set all that up ahead of time, so he would be named drawn out of the water. Well, how did God ultimately save Israel further on down the line? He drew them out of the water, and then he drowned Pharaoh and his armies in the water. So he was named drawn out from, the, from birth, and that name was used then to deliver Israel as he drew them out of the water. So there's... there's I'm saying some of these things to help us focus on how God knew what was going on all along, okay? And he worked things out in so many specific ways. Specificity, I tried to say it yesterday. I'll get it out today. Uh, very specifically, worked things out, worked the time order out, knew exactly what he was doing. Prepared people ahead of time. But you see here, Exodus opens with the story of the uh, danger that Moses was in as a little child. And of course, that points forward to when Christ was born and Herod declared that all the male children should die. Because Herod feared that a Messiah was being born and he didn't know who it was or where he was. So he says, kill all the boy babies and we'll get him so that this can't happen. Uh, history repeats itself and God uses the same manner and methods uh, over and over again from Adam on down until the end of the plan uh, of God. And he is again preparing right here at the end in the same way uh, a leadership to guide God's people to safety and to stand against the world. Moses didn't know at this point, as he grew up in Pharaoh's house, that he was being prepared to lead Israel out. But he knew the Israelite culture and society inside and out, having been uh, the daughter of Pharaoh's son, adopted son, as it turned out. 
Anyway, he grew. And then as an adult, he understood the difference between himself and the Hebrews or the Israelites that were there and the Egyptian peoples. So we had the situation where uh, an Egyptian was uh, whipping up on an Israelite and Moses looked both ways and killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. And he thought, having looked both ways before he crossed that street, that he would be okay. But the next day, two Hebrews were fighting and... uh, he asked him, why are you doing this? Why don't you stop fighting? He says, oh, you're going to kill us the way you did the Egyptian. Uh-oh. <laughs> Somebody saw, and he fled for his life. About the same time, Pharaoh heard the story and tried to kill him. So, uh, just as Herod had tried, this was the second time with Moses that they tried to kill him and uh, failed because God had a job for Moses to do. Now, with Christ, the first time they tried to kill him, with Herod killing the boy babies, didn't work. Second time they tried killing him, it did work. But that was on purpose. It diverts from the original story somewhat. Though God doesn't make every story exactly the same in every era, but he uses the same type of thing with sometimes a bit of a different ending or or it has a specific twist based on the age that it's done for. But he uses the same methods is what I'm trying to say and uh, repeats the story form even though each has a little different twist. So he was to get away. And there are other parallels here that seem to fit as well. Uh, chapter 2, verse 16, now the priest of Midian, where Moses fled to, and fled into Midian uh, to get away from Pharaoh. <coughs> this priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Well, Moses uh, attacked the herders, male herders, who would not let the women get water for their flocks until they had gotten theirs. We're selfish about it. So uh, Moses intervened and, and helped those seven women get water for their flocks. Uh, we fast forward uh, and we find uh, in the book of Revelation seven churches. Uh, and in Isaiah as a prophecy for the end time here, we find seven women taking hold of one man we find uh, seven trees or churches being established in the wilderness in Isaiah 41. <clears throat> so the, the parallels here are the same. God uses those numbers over and over. Now, he only married one of them in this case, but uh, he got there and, and they told Dad what had happened. He says, well, where is this man? Well, they were to go look him up, find him, and bring him home. And uh, they had gotten back early is what made Dad question it in the first place, because usually they had to stand and wait till all the other herders got done. So he wound up marrying Zipporah, one of the daughters of, of his father-in-law there. Now, in verse 23 of chapter 2, it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt, or Mitzrayim, died... And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage. 
Now we find toward the end of Isaiah, uh, in the 50s and 60s, somewhere right in there, uh, how we cry out now, uh, seeking deliverance from this system, this world that we're in, and how we want uh, all these things to happen and the kingdom of God to come. So we sigh and cry, and that is even a, a term that he uses there in Isaiah, the, those that sigh and cry for the abominations, or is that in Ezekiel? Anyway, it's, uh, that's the exact word. It's they sigh and cry over the evil and everything that's going on in our society today and want it to be changed. So we have the same situation as they had back in Mitzrayim in that day. Now God heard that. And he was concerned. Verse 24, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect to them. Now, they, had they truly understood God, and they didn't at this time, or even know really who he was, they'd been worshiping the gods of Egypt during this period of time. But they would have thought, would they not, uh, God needs to deliver us right now. If they heard about God and, and they saw that he was concerned, but that wasn't God's plan. Moses stayed out there for 40 years before he was sent back to deliver them. So God heard their cries. He heard their bondage. He heard their concerns day and night. 600,000 men at least, plus women and children, crying and sighing and wishing that they were delivered from slavery and the bondage that they were under. But God had his own timetable. So he trained Moses out there for 40 years before he sent him back to even begin to deliver those people, even though he heard their cry and was concerned for them and had respect to it all along. Uh, but Moses had to be trained. Moses was not ready to lead them out. In chapter 3, we find that uh, God appeared to Moses. And up to this point, Moses didn't really know what was going on or why he was there or what he was doing or anything else. But then you had the burning bush at Mount Horeb or Sinai uh, on that side of the mountain. And he saw that went to see what was going on. And then he was told that was holy ground and that, that Christ was there, who is the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face and was afraid. And he, God said in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Mitzrayim, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Mitzrayimites and to bring them up out of that land to a good land and a large, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, uh, and so on. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come to me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Mitzrayimites oppress them. So God had known all along what was going on. Now, you think he doesn't have any idea what's going on in the church today and in the world today? He's very, very aware, and he's working things out. 
Verse 10, he gives Moses a commission. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Mitzrayim. And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Mitzrayim? Now, I'm sure it was fresh in his mind, uh, the story that had been told him as a child, how he had come out of the water uh, because of danger to his life. It was certainly fresh in his mind as a 40-year-old when he killed that Mitzriamite and had to flee for his life and knew that Pharaoh wanted him dead. So uh, his reaction was, who am I? Why, why do you want me to go back? I imagine there were a lot of mixed emotions there. For one thing, he was, for the most part, a meek and humble man, but he also had a memory bank of fear and terror and fleeing for his very life. So, you, you really want me to go back there? You're talking to me. This is, this is Moses, remember? You know, I, I fled out here because they were trying to kill me back there. Now, he didn't know what had transpired in the meantime or that Pharaoh was dead. What he knew was that he had fled for his life. So God encouraged him, verse 12, and he said, Certainly I'll be with you, and this shall be a token to you that I have sent you when you have brought forth the people out of Mitzrayim, you shall serve God upon this mountain. So Moses had fled to the right place, to Midian, which contained Horeb or Mount Sinai, and somehow it worked out that he was minding the flocks and so on right there, and that's where the burning bush was. And if you think a burning bush was spectacular, wait till he gets Israel out there and the lid blows off the volcano, if that's what it was, and there's fire and lightning and ash and dust and pumice flying, and it would have been a terrible sight to behold. So God started with a little fire for Moses and then made a great big fire for all Israel at the same place later on. He had this thing all worked out in detail, didn't he? It just It's a beautiful story. Verse 13, he wasn't quite convinced yet. Moses said to God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So he will have to introduce the name of God to these people because they've forgotten it all this time and didn't know who he was. I don't know for sure even that Moses at that point did. Maybe there's a comment in here somewhere about that. And he told him also that to tell them that they, he was the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that story I'm sure they would have remembered about how they'd then later, Jacob and Joseph had come down into Mitzrayim. So God gives something that they could tie to and say, this is the same God that would appear to Abraham, you know. So he said then, verse 16, Go, that is, go into Mitzrayim again, and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them uh, that the God of the fathers had visited him and seen what was done there in Mitzrayim and tell them that he would deliver them and give them a land of milk and honey uh, in the promised land. Doesn't God tell us the same thing now? Look at Isaiah 55. He says, 
gather yourselves together there in 54. And then in 55 it says, drink wine and milk without money. You'll have everything you need. It'll be a land of milk and honey again. God will give us, in Isaiah 51 it talks about how He will give us the garden like it was in Eden. He's going to change things. He's going to make it hospitable for us. And it's not as much necessarily for us. It is in part for us. But it's also in part to show the world what God can do, and who He is, and which God He is. Because the world doesn't know the true God anymore. Just like Israel didn't know who the true God was. So just as He did back then, He's going to do the same thing again to show the world who God is. Then they shall know me, he says, over and over and over through the Scriptures. And he, and he says the same thing back here uh, to Moses and the Israelites. <clears throat> so he says, tell them I'm going to send them, send them into a promised land. Uh, verse 18, And they shall hearken to your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of uh, to Pharaoh, or king of Mizraim, and say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now let us go. We beseech you three days into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And Pharaoh's going to listen, of course, and turn them loose, right? Uh, verse 19, And I am sure that the king of Mitzrayim will not let you go, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Mitzrayim with all my wonders which I will do in the midst thereof and after that he will let you go and they weren't to go empty but he says you'll be able to borrow of or take from the Mitzrayimites their gold their jewelry their silver the riches of that land where is it here uh, well I'll, I'll get to it in a little bit where it says he refused anyway they were to spoil the Mitzrayimites, end of verse 22. Then in chapter uh, 4, uh, Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me nor hearken to my voice, for they will say, The Eternal has not appeared to you. So he's afraid to go before Pharaoh, and now he's also afraid to go before the elders of Israel. Well, you see... Moses had to have some attitude adjustments before he was prepared to go and do the job that God had called him to do. He was a man. He had his difficulties. He had his attitudes. He had his fears. Those had to be dealt with. And we find that that is true in any age of history, uh, that whoever God chose to lead at a certain point in time had attitudes or difficulties or problems or faults or whatever it might be. And they had to be trained and guided and led. Uh, there were a few exceptions. In Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, God says, if Noah, Daniel, and... Uh, oh, what was the other name he used there? Were here. They could only save themselves. He named three. But Noah... Daniel, and it escapes me who the third one that God named there. Can you, can you think of it? Anyway, <clears throat> those three, it just comes to mind, didn't have as much attitude adjustment as others had to have. Uh, you didn't see that with Noah, did you? 
and Daniel. Uh, he went into captivity in Babylon and went through the castration, went through all the... Uh, but even Abraham had to have some attitude adjustment. He and Sarah, you know, and then they had to wait. And things went on and on. So even the father of the faithful had to be prepared and wait and be patient until God chose to do things. You know, it would have been a whole lot easier on Abraham and Sarah if maybe she'd have started having kids back in childbearing years. And, and that would have made life a lot simpler. But he waited till they were both beyond capacity to even engender children and uh, told them they'd have kids, and then they had to wait some more. And uh, finally, but, you know, there was some laughter, some skepticism, various things that had to be dealt with before God could use them to do what needed to be done. And then a huge test came with Isaac when God said, take him out and sacrifice him. He was a grown man, probably 30 years old or so. And uh, Abraham said, okay, <laughs> that's what you say. He'd been through enough already that, all right, I believe God, I trust God, I have faith, I know God will work this out some way, so Isaac, come on, let's saddle up, we're going to go kill you. I don't know exactly what words he used, he might have been a little more diplomatic than that, but, um, you know, that was what was going on. And I know Isaac, if he didn't know ahead of time, when he got started being strapped down on that pile of wood, he had a pretty good idea what was going on, I imagine. So God was trying them both at that point before Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob could be the, our fathers. So these adjustments had to be made. Many lessons here for us as we await the deliverance from God, as we await the kingdom of God, as we await His promises to be fulfilled, and we've come to understand a lot of them a lot better in the prophecies now than perhaps we knew a few years ago. But still in all, we have to be tried, we have to be tested. And he finally, when Abraham did with what he did with Isaac, and God de delivered and didn't make him kill him, he said, now I know, Abraham, all my doubts are removed. I've gotten you trained to the point now that I can covenant with you uh, or fulfill my covenant with you. I can trust you to do what needs to be done and you will turn out to be the father of the faithful. But before, before he finished the thing, uh, see, it would have ended right there, wouldn't it? If, if Abraham had failed that test... God may have allowed, caused Isaac to be sacrificed right there. And then the covenant for Abraham, Isaac, through Jacob would have stopped. I don't know what all the play was. It isn't all filled in exactly everything that occurred, but it was certainly a huge test. So here he is uh, dealing with Moses. Well, they're not going to... God didn't appear to you... <laughs> You know, that's, isn't that the way it is in the church today? Somebody rises up and says, I'm the leader here. God showed me or God called me to preach the gospel around the world as a witness and then the end will come and I'm, I'm Herbert Armstrong's successor and you all need to look to me. And everybody says, God hasn't appeared to you. 
It doesn't matter who it is or where it is. Uh, that's the reaction you get. So, uh, that's to be expected. So God says, okay, we'll have a few lessons here. You see that rod in your hand? Throw it on the ground. Oh, it's a snake. Put your hand in your garment. Leprosy. Fingers are about to fall off. Just like that. So, Moses kind of got that lesson, I guess. And then he comes up with another excuse. Verse 10, Moses said to the Eternal, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since have you spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow tongue, and I didn't pass any of the the speeches in Spokesman's Club. I I, I can't go talk. (laughs) Well, okay, I have a way around that. You got a brother named Aaron, don't you? Well, yeah, okay, he's going to speak for you. You still got to go to Pharaoh, you still got to do all this, but you'll just have to keep your mouth shut since you think you can't talk, and we'll just let Aaron do it for you. He passed, all, he passed even the attack speech. Uh, so I'm, I'm not trying to read all of this, but you know the story. Uh, but just picking out some things that fit today with the same dynamics that we face. Uh, and I'm sure in dealing with leaders-to-be that God is having his difficulties uh, getting them to have right attitudes, right approaches, right everything that is needed. Uh, so he told him in verse 17, after letting him know that, uh, that Aaron would speak, that he was to take the rod and do the signs So he took the rod of God in his hand into verse 20. And uh, then God said, But even then, you've seen these miracles, and now you've got a spokesman. Uh, You're still going to run into trouble when you get there. Oh, okay. Because he's not going to let the people go. And then verse 30 of chapter 4, Aaron spoke all the words which the Eternal had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. So first of all, they had to convince Israel that God had sent them to deliver them. Then they had to go, once that was accomplished, and convince Pharaoh to indeed let them go. So they had a, a pretty tall order here to, first of all, get... Israel itself to believe that God had sent you to deliver. So it wasn't just the leadership that had a problem. It was also the people of Israel who had a problem. Uh, The leadership God selected, began to train, began to work with, got their attitude straightened out. Then he sent them to the people, and the people said, Who do you think you are? (laughs) You know, God hasn't spoken to you. Uh, What are we going to do? And then Moses and Aaron did uh, wonders and signs in the sight of the people, verse 30. What does it say in the end time? Go to Zechariah 3. It says that God will choose a leader and that he will have to do signs and wonders before the eyes of the seven churches even begin to turn. And then the leadership that is put in place then, only 10% of the ones called under Herbert Armstrong, essentially, will even respond to them 
when God has done signs and wonders and given every man his own vine and fig tree, as Zechariah 3 shows. And then it shows the two witnesses in Zechariah 4, which we went through the other day, giving oil or teaching and doctrine to the seven churches, the seven candlesticks, seven daughters of Midian. Uh, the, the story is the same. Little, little different actors on the scene, a little different circumstance, uh, but still in all, the story thread is the same. So then chapter 5, <clears throat> uh, Moses and Aaron went and told Pharaoh, Thus says the eternal God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Sounds well logical, doesn't it? And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Now let's close with one verse, back in Jeremiah again. <coughs> Jeremiah 50, same area we were in. Uh, and here I want verse 33. Jeremiah fifty thirty three. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, The children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together, and all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. Now this is an end-time prophecy. He's referring back to what we're reading in uh, Exodus, but he's bringing it forward as an end-time prophecy and saying it's, the circumstances are going to be the same all over again. Verse 34, Their Redeemer is strong. The Eternal of hosts is His name. Remember, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. He shall thoroughly plead their cause that He may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. So He tells us to flee from Babylon in many, many places, and in the same context here in Jeremiah 50 and 51 that's mentioned several times. But they refuse to turn us loose. They're going to fight us. Uh, they'll try to put us in cities. They're trying to get Americans to leave the country and go to the city. Uh, you know, on and on it goes with Agenda 21 and what's happening in our country today. And our society and culture doesn't want to turn us loose. They want to hold us in bondage to every aspect of what Babylon stands for, just like Rome did, and just like Pharaoh and Mitzrayim did. So the story is the same, whether we read it in Jeremiah or whether we read it in Exodus. Well, we're out of time for tonight. I wanted to limit these to about an hour, so I'll, I'll stop there. But uh, it should be obvious to us the parallels that we're looking at here and I think this is a good time during the Days of Unleavened Bread to go back and review the story of what Israel did in that first captivity and deliverance and then kind of tie it at least loosely together with the time we have with the end-time prophecies, which, which are a mirror image of what we had here. So we'll stop there for tonight.